2: Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. I'm not an envious person. I generally can enjoy my life without needing to worry about if other people are doing better than me. They are. Or making better stuff than me. They are. Or dropping cleverer puns than me. Hmm. But I have to admit that I'm slightly envious of the audio craftsmanship and interview guests that are showing up in the new podcast, Wild Thing. Slightly. I mean, if there were a way for me to find out all the secrets behind the success of this new series about the hunt for Bigfoot. It's
1: actually quite unlike
3: anything we've ever seen before.
2: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man.
1: In
3: Loch Ness, a twenty-four-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Karen wasn't able to be on this episode because of laryngitis, but hopefully she'll be back soon and in the podcasting saddle again. But despite her illness, she's working hard behind the scenes to help set up future interviews and generally keep this show going. So you could always send her a get well wish on Twitter at Karen Stolzno. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. The new podcast, Wild Thing, is produced by Laura Krantz, a cousin of the late anthropologist Grover Krantz, who was probably the best-known trained scientist looking for Bigfoot in the 1970s. An experienced audio producer with years at NPR under her belt, she's become a podcaster and her new show is full of interesting interviews and is a fun introduction into the world of Bigfoot. She's still new to this stuff, and it's really interesting to hear her take on the world of Bigfoot hunting and the characters therein. Links to her show and some of the books we mentioned will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. So let's get on to the Monster Talk. All right, tonight, Monster Talk welcomes Laura Krantz. She's a former editor and producer at NPR, including work on Morning Edition, and she's written for publications such as Newsweek, Popular Science, and Smithsonian. She's the host of a new and popular podcast about Bigfoot and the Bigfoot scene called Wild Thing, which is produced by Foxtopus, Inc., of which she is a partner. And if you've been listening to Monster Talk for very long, you'll also notice that her last name is Krantz, which may sound familiar. You can find Wild Thing on iTunes or Apple's podcasting app or your favorite podcast aggregator. And as always, a link will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Welcome to Monster Talk,
3: Laura. Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
2: Or should I say Lori?
3: <laughs> right i know uh what do you say to an 86 year old man who keeps getting your name wrong i you, don't know
2: i don't yeah, know yeah you kind
3: of you just let it go i mean he was he was endearing and he was nice and whatever it's just one vowel
2: yeah no no it's close and and i i actually uh i was super excited i was going to meet bob in september we're talking about bob gimlin here uh and he was supposed to be at CryptidCon uh, which is a, a cryptid, cryptozoology-themed convention in Kentucky uh, that I've been to for the first two years of it. And unfortunately, he didn't make it, but he's 82. These things happen, you know. I, I mean, he's getting on up there, but I would have loved to have met him.
3: Yeah, he's a he's a lovely man. And then he's just such a cowboy too, with the uh, the big belt buckle and all the you know, the little colloquialisms and the cowboy hat and the wranglers and he's still out there doing stuff on the ranch and um, yeah, living the life.
2: Yeah, that sounds like my grandpa. He, he, he's 102, but I think he stopped working somewhere on 98 or 99. You know, I mean, he just, he wouldn't stop, right? Just all yeah. the way. Up. So, uh, even now, I don't think he likes the fact that he can't get out there and take care of the cows and such. So, you know, that happens. Well, yeah. all right. Let's get started with the questions. So you're, you're probably sick of answering this question, but it's, and you actually do answer it in the very first episode of Wild Thing, but to give our listeners some context. How did you find yourself involved in the field of Bigfoot studies?
3: So back in 2006, I was reading um, the Washington Post. This is while I was working for NPR. And I was flipping through. And in the style section, there was this big article about a guy named Grover Krantz. And, you know, I just same last name started reading about him. And basically, he just was this fascinating guy who was a a very well-respected anthropologist and had donated his body to the Tennessee body farm, which is where they do tissue decomp analysis, and then donated his bones to the Smithsonian along with the bones of his dogs. And then there was this sort of throwaway section towards the end of the article that was talking about how he would drive around the Pacific Northwest looking for Sasquatch with a spotlight and a rifle. And at this point, I'm like, wow, this guy is really interesting and really weird. And also his family's from Salt Lake City, which is where my dad's family was from. So I wondered if we were related. I asked my dad. He wasn't sure. I asked my grandfather. And he was like, oh, yeah, that was my cousin. He used to show up at the family picnics with calipers and measure everybody's head. Um, (laughs) Right? Yeah. So this is a guy who's devoted to science like from an early age, like just fascinated by human anatomy and anthropology and biology and just a real scientist to his core. And after sort of reading all these tidbits and then learning that he was a relative, I was just like, man, I feel like I need to explore this somehow. But I didn't really know what to do with it. So I sat on it for a while. And there were just all these signs from the universe over the course of the next decade where Grover's name would pop up in places or Somehow someone who was in anthropology would be like, oh, are you related to Grover Krantz? And I I thought that was just so obscure, but he really was well known in anthropology. And then when I was living in Denver, I found out that his fourth wife, a woman named Diane Horton, lived 30 miles from me. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is a sign. I have to do something with this. And having been in radio, a podcast seemed like the best choice.
2: Yeah, so uh, this will seem like a weird diversion to our listeners, perhaps, but I'm curious. How did you get into audio engineering and editing? Is, was that out of a journalism school, or where did, how did that happen?
3: No, that was that's a long, convoluted tale as well. I was getting a master's degree in international relations while I was living in D.C., and what I realized as I was getting my master's degree is that I really liked school, and I liked learning. And I needed to find a job where I was going to be doing more of that. And that kind of narrowed it down to politics, which I'm glad I didn't do, and journalism. (laughs) And so I applied for an internship at NPR. This would have been during my second year of graduate school and ended up getting it, which was pure luck because I had no journalism background. My undergraduate degree was in history and did the internship and really liked it. And then I just wouldn't leave. I just took every temp job that came available, you know, someone would be going on vacation for two weeks and they'd need someone to fill in and I'd be like, I'll do it. And I just took, took any, anything I could get. And eventually they had to hire me.
2: That's awesome. I, I, yeah. I I'm a long time NPR supporter and listener. So,
3: yeah. Oh, great. No, good. Yeah, I, they do good stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I, 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 as one of those people who contributes, I don't, I don't feel guilty during the pledge drive. I so just, just, you know, so. <laughs> they They've really transformed the podcasting world i mean they fr- from an amateur you know like myself they, it's uh it's they've changed the the landscape considerably by bringing in professional shows to the venue you know i mean to to the mm-hmm. format um yeah so that's a little tough to compete with, but you know, it what I when when podcasting started, I thought about it as a microcasting. So you could pick a topic, just whatever the topic was and and probably find an audience. If if you like to knit and only with wool, you know, you know, you can find the people. <laughs> you can find your audience, right?
3: I think that still exists. I really do because you know, NPR is good at doing sort of big, broad, well-produced shows and and some interview stuff. But really, if you want to get into the nitty gritty and like the, the small details of a particular topic, you're not going to find that at NPR or any of the other big companies, you're going to be better off looking for the guy that's super enthusiastic about knitting with wool and talking to him or her.
2: Yeah, I, I hope there is a knitting with wool podcast. Now I'll have to go check later. <laughs> <laughs> so what software do you use to edit your show?
3: Uh, I use Hindenburg. It's great. It's available online. NPR has a very specific um, software that they use. It was designed specifically for them because of all their sort of strange needs that they have um, with people working across multiple time zones and around the world and being able to share documents. And they had to be able to put their, their, uh, written copy in in with the, with the actual, the text in with the, uh, the audio. So you could kind of see the notes and all the rest of it. It's a very convoluted system. And when I left NPR, I didn't know any of the other audio programs that were out there. And Hindenburg is the one that has come closest in terms of having the same keyboard commands. Cause I would get into final cut or, um, some You know, Adobe Audition and I just would be tearing my hair out because I would hit like command D and needed to do something. It would do something completely different. And it was just driving me bananas. So... I ended up finding Hindenburg through the recommendation of a friend and have really liked it.
2: I'm just dying to know why did they call it that? Was it because it crashes and burns or because it's, <laughs> it's great for the humanities?
3: I just <laughs> You know, that is a great question. I actually don't know why they call it that. I did wonder about the name initially. I was like, this't does seem this seems like it might go up in flames.. Yeah.
2: I was, um, it was Hindenburg or Titanic. I couldn't decide.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Or Lusitania, one of the three. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
2: oh, and, and, uh, and who does your music?
3: Um, I found, or I was, a guy was, who was recommended to me. His name is Ramteen Arablui. He is a, uh, producer and music person at NPR. And he was recommended by a friend of mine because he did independent, um, com- uh, composition and mixing on the side. And so I uh, I reached out to him and he was interested in Bigfoot. He had been since he'd been a kid. And I was just crossing my fingers that he was going to be available to do this podcast because I really felt like whoever was involved in it needed to have something of an interest in the topic to really really like make it sing, so to speak.
2: Well, so so you were doing work with NPR. How long? So I read in your your bio that that well. I guess actually it's in the show notes for your own show, the description, it says you spent a year working on preparing for this. So um how did you make that leap? I mean, uh, is uh, like, how did how did you decide to, like, go into podcasting? Is, it, is this your full time job now?
3: Currently it is. Um, I left NPR in 2012, the very end of 2012. And then I went to KPCC, which is the big NPR station affiliate in Los Angeles, uh, working for Southern California Public Radio and was there for a couple of years. And then by then I was just really burned out on daily news. So I applied for a fellowship in environmental journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder, which is basically for mid-career journalists to come and spend a year taking all the classes they possibly want on science, environment, journalism, whatever you're interested in. And wow. they, they pay you to do it. It's the most magical experience you could possibly have. And you're right there in in the Rocky Mountains in Boulder, Colorado, which is a lovely town.
2: Boulder is beautiful. Oh it my is. God. I love Boulder. My, uh, I know. my friend, uh, Phil plate lives out there. The, the bad astronomer. So.
3: Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. 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 Um, so I got, I was lucky enough to live there for a year and then, um, reality hit and I couldn't afford the rent staying in, in Boulder. So I ended up coming to Denver and I was doing freelance writing at the time because part of what I tried to do when I was, at the at, uh, University of Colorado was try my hand at print as opposed to doing radio just to see if I liked it. And there were parts that were great. And then there were parts that were a real drag. And I just kept thinking, I want to get back into audio somehow. And then when I found out that this, that Grover's fourth wife was living so nearby, I just thought, you know, I think there's something I can do here. And so I went to do an interview with her just to kind of suss out what Kind of material I'd be working with people, see what people she could maybe put me in touch with, and I finished that interview and I thought, man, this guy's a really. We talked about Grover a lot, and he's just such an interesting guy. And then this whole community of people who are looking for Bigfoot, this sort of subculture of American society, is also really interesting. And I, that's the point at which I just sort of took the plunge. I was still doing some part-time work with the university doing science communications. and then some odd freelance editing jobs here and there. Um, but this has really been my my full-time gig for the past year. So this
2: will sound a bit morbid, and I don't mean for it to, but you've kind of already discussed it. Uh, have you actually been to see Grover and his dogs? I, I have to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, you have? Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was, I've seen photos, and I was like, I was, it almost feels like one of those, uh, I don't know, Cryptozoology meccas to go see. Him. You know, I You know what I mean?
3: <laughs> it's, it's yeah, little, totally. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I would. I lived in D.C. from 2001 until 2012, and Grover went up on display in 2006 or seven, I believe.
2: Oh, to remind so, our listeners in case they've forgotten, because we have yeah. mentioned it before. After he died, as and as she mentioned, he went to the body farm, and mm-hmm. then they've actually uh arranged his skeleton and his uh his uh, were they wolfhounds
3: yeah irish wolfhounds
2: yeah Three of them. It, it's it's a really beautiful display i mean it, yeah. I, gosh i i' it's weird how often I think about like how people can sort of be remembered and um i i i I've often thought about having my ashes poured in with concrete so that you could like make a little brick that had my name and information on it, and then like as my family died off, they could like build a wall for my family I thought that'd be really cool. <laughs> But but uh, Grover it, like it, it's him playing with his wolfhounds basically, and he loved his dogs. Yeah, yeah it's it's a really it's I, I don't I know it's scientifically uh, interesting because he wanted to like do something scientific with his body, mm-hmm. but it's uh, also it's 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 really touching I think uh, to see the way you know the way they've arranged it. So I'd really love to see it in person.
3: Yeah, it's still up there. So the exhibit he was originally a part of was something called Written in Bone which was about forensic anthropology. And that exhibit closed a, a, quite a few years ago now, maybe four or five. But they left Grover and Clyde still in their case. And they just moved them into a classroom that's on the first floor of the National Museum of Natural History, right out there on the National Mall in D.C. And, it, you know, you can go in and you can still see him. And he's overseeing the science education classroom for kids. And, you know, he said when he donated his body, I've been a teacher all my life. I'd like to keep teaching after I'm gone. And so I think he'd be pretty pleased with with where he is right now.
2: That's fantastic. I sometimes feel like there's this, a a degree of uh, sort of nod and wink coyness that becomes kind of de rigueur for content producers when they try to navigate around the topic of Bigfoot without declaring themselves as either being a believer or a skeptic. I mean, we want to have shows that anyone can listen to, but how would you describe your approach to that issue on Wild Thing?
3: My goal was to come into this with a a pretty open mind. There were some places I just couldn't go, especially conversations about Bigfoot you know, being able to move through dimensions or cloaking or telepathy, things like that, because that was just that was outside of the realm of what Grover, Grover thought was possible. Um, and it was also just, you know, Bigfoot himself Bigfoot is very hard to prove. Adding in that element would just make it nearly impossible. And I just didn't see how you could do it. So I really tried to approach this in the same way Grover did at that in that Bigfoot, if it exists, is a flesh and blood creature, beholden to the same laws of nature that the rest of us are. And my Biggest goal here was just, I didn't want to make fun of people. I really wanted to go in and talk to them and hear what they had to say and hear what their experiences were and come at this from an objective observer standpoint and just see what kind of information is out there.
2: Yeah, I'm very skeptical, but I've always been fascinated by monsters and Bigfoot's a favorite. It's not my very favorite monster, but it's certainly one of my favorites. And as a kid, just, oh, I was so entranced with, uh, Watching it on all the different documentaries and going out in the woods and looking for Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, I've, even though I've become, uh, as I like to say, provisionally, uh, an unbeliever, you know, I'm certainly willing to change my opinion. I, I still love, (laughs) I still love Bigfoot. It's, It's, so, um, for your podcast do you have a target audience I mean do you have an ideal listener who who are you kind of looking for to be out there listening
3: obviously I'd love it if the bigfoot people were listening to this but I think a lot of it is repetitive for them too like a lot of what I'm covering is pretty basic you could say it's this is this is Bigfoot 101 and a lot of them know all this stuff and it's nothing particularly new to them but I'm hoping that they're still getting something kind of fun or interesting out of it but really I'm targeting people who are just kind of interested in the idea there are a lot lot of people out there who may not even realize they're interested in Bigfoot. And then you start talking about it a little bit and they have all these questions and they kind of want to know what what's this all about? Where's the fascination come from? And those are the people I'm trying to reach. I'm also trying to reach people who maybe think that it's a complete and utter joke and have totally dismissed it. And, you know, maybe get them to think, well, maybe if not now, then maybe once upon a time, just kind of bringing a little bit of that of that wonderment about the world back into back into their lives,
2: as you look at the show, have you have you planned out a certain number of episodes? Are you going to be doing seasons?
3: This is a a one season run, at least as of right now. So there are nine story episodes, three of those have already aired. and so there's six more to go. And then there are four bonus episodes, and one of those has already aired. That was the interview with Bob Gimlin last Friday. And then I, so I've got three more. So all, t- all all total, there's still nine episodes to go. This will carry us through into December. And then uh, it'll be done right before Christmas. So hopefully people will go home and tell their families all about it or over New Year's or whatever people happen to be celebrating. And uh, yeah, that's that's my goal. Word of mouth. Spread it out there.
2: Well, you're hitting a few thousand here, so that's cool.
3: (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Tell all your friends. (laughs) In in
2: previous Monster Talk episodes, we've talked with uh, historian Brian Regal, who wrote a book called uh, Searching for Sasquatch, and he talked a lot about Grover in that book and about some Mm -hmm. of the uh, amazing stories around the early search for the Yeti and the Bigfoot. Will you be Mm -hmm. digging into those early days of stuff like Tom Slick and all those interesting men's adventure magazine articles about Bigfoot?
3: I'm not getting into those nearly as much. There will be a little bit about Tom Slick um, from the standpoint that I talked to Peter Byrne, who is still alive. And Peter I know. is one of the, Oh my gosh, I'd love to I talk know. to him. Yeah, He's one of the original four horsemen of Sasquatchery, as they call them. And he's still alive and kicking out there in Oregon. And I spoke to him several times. And so Tom Slick came up during those conversations. But I didn't get too deep into those... Stories. There was a lot of ground I was trying to cover. You know, the next episode is really about people's eyewitness encounters and their own personal experiences with something out in the woods, which are pretty hair-raising. I mean, a lot of those stories you just hear them, you're just and they're just mind-boggling. They're you they you're you know you just feel the hair on the, your arms stand up and on the back of your neck. And for me, they're the most compelling pieces of of evidence per se. I realize that eyewitness accounts don't necessarily stand up in court, but Man, these people really did have some sort of crazy experience out there.
2: Yeah, and it's the, the, that's, tough to dismiss them. It, it is, and uh, you know, uh, when I go to things like Crypticon and meet people who've who've had these experiences, it's certainly uh, it, it's not one of those things you. It, I don't feel comfortable saying, "Well, that didn't happen because Bigfoot's no not way. real." You know what I mean? It, yeah. they, they had uh-huh. some kind of experience. Yeah. So I, I, I personally am more inclined to think, well. You know, I don't think there's sufficient evidence to say Bigfoot's real, but I don't discount that you had a weird experience. That's, Right, I wasn't there. Right, you know, and right. and people, exactly, and yeah, maybe it,
3: it was Bigfoot. I mean, yeah. who the hell knows for sure? And but
2: golly, I mean, who would be more excited than somebody who spent their yeah. life thinking about? It? I would love there
3: <laughs> exactly
2: find a body. Golly, I'd be very excited. And as I like to point out, I'm one of those people who would speed up to hit Bigfoot if it ran out in front of me. So <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> wow, you're in Grover's camp. Yeah, no,
2: I'm I'm definitely in the kill camp. I, when I went to Cryptocon, people were handing out these. Uh, magnetic uh uh not they're not really bumper stickers but like these like magnetic sort of adhesive uh Uh uh, things for i'm in the kill camp or the no kill camp so my truck is uh proudly sporting a uh yeah shoot him right (laughs) wow
3: opening yourself up to a world of trouble right there well
2: you know i've already i'm already in the trouble of uh being a you know a skeptic who loves monsters. I've got all kinds of problems. I, I like to think of myself <laughs> where the uh, I, I, I frequently describe myself as being in a ghetto inside a ghetto, uh, in the yeah. ghetto for people who uh love monsters and also in the ghetto of people who self describe as skeptics. So I'm in a yeah. narrow, tiny little circle. You are, of yeah, so. a
3: Venn diagram. Yeah, of, my Venn uh, diagram
2: your- puts me in a very strange little shape. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. So. <laughs>
3: So but yeah, then some of the other episodes get into some into some of the interesting science that's being applied to Bigfoot studies. So like DNA analysis, we'll get into that in episode five. And then I go out on a I got to go out on a Bigfoot expedition with a few people, which is pretty fun. And that'll be one episode. And then I also am looking at sort of the cultural appeal, because even for people who don't believe in Bigfoot, there really is a fascination and companies have figured that out.
0: Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics
1: audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Chinwagpod and Wagon.
3: Think about all the brands you know of that have Bigfoot in the name or oh, the yeah. logo, yeah, or, or, the or
2: Yeti. I mean, golly, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah,
3: exactly. Uh, so talk about a little, uh, talk about that a little bit too. So I, you know, I could have probably gone on for years with this, but. Um there are other projects that I'd like to work on too and I didn't want to become just the Bigfoot girl.
2: Sure, sure. And, and cryptozoology as a field is is pretty broad. There's a lot of monsters out there. And we've talked we talk about all kinds of monsters not just cryptozoology. So we get into things like the Frankenstein monster and hybridization and vampires and so on. But was this your first foray into the culture of cryptozoology?
3: Yes, it was. I wasn't even a Bigfoot person at all before sort of Starting to learn about Grover and all of this. I've really, Bigfoot was just kind of tabloid fodder, kind of silly. Harry and the Hendersons might have been my my largest exposure to Bigfoot. Um,
2: <laughs> I just yeah. watched that on the big screen like two weeks ago. It came back as one of these like, uh, you know, retro theater things. I took my kids <laughs> to go see it. It was fun. So
3: It's cute. It really, it kind of holds up. And actually, I interviewed William Deere, who was the, Director and producer on that film as for one of the bonus episodes So you'll get to hear from him a little bit later this year.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, has uh, has everybody been treating you nicely?
3: Yes, most everybody has been really fantastic. Um, I did get a little bit of angry email uh, after the evolution episode Um, Some people saying I was a little too dismissive of creationism Mm. and then Oh, I've gotten a few people who were upset that I dismissed footprints outright as evidence. And I probably should have been a little more judicious about how I said that, saying that they are not sufficient evidence on their own. Then there's definitely been a few people who have not wanted to talk to me more on the scientific, the science side of things. Like I was trying to get interviews with a few people at the Smithsonian to talk about evolution and where Bigfoot might fit into the, the old phylogenetic tree. And they basically just were like, nope. And I was like, why not? And they were just like, nope. And I was like, is it cause it because of Bigfoot? And they're like, mm, we just don't want to talk about it. So. <laughs> All right. You know, uh, we've talked about this
2: on Monster Talk quite a few times. But there is this weird – and I don't mean that weirdly like dismissive I, –
3: a taboo? A uh, uh, taboo.
2: There's this strange thing that happens where there is a subgroup within cryptozoology that is deeply invested in cryptozoology as a mode of discounting uh, natural selection and evolution and old <laughs> Earth. And, really? Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's typically not around Bigfoot. It's typically around things like Mabimbe, which is uh, the idea that there's mm-hmm. a... That's ex- in the Congo, right? The right. The and, and, dinosaur and thing. That in the ropin as a pterosaur being alive. And the idea, I think, is that if they could find a living example of these, it would in some way prove that the Earth is... Not as old as people say. Now, I don't know how that would comport with things like the coelacanth and other creatures like the alligator that, that, that have evolved over time, but have ba- basically maintained the same morphology over time. And you, you can't really capture the molecular changes over time through the fossil record because some animals, mm-hmm. they heavily conserve their shape. But, but it's there. It, there's, there are cryptozoologists who are also young earth creationists and they're, they're not, uh, insignificant. They're, they're a big factor, I think.
3: Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, no, no, no real hate mail. A couple of like people who are, think that I'm trying to be funny and I'm not, and a few other things like that. But most people have been really positive about it. And I've gotten some lovely letters and some really nice feedback. I met a, my dad's cousin who he's never met. Um, but is someone who lives in Washington, reached out and sent a note. And so, you know, I'm meeting some new relatives that, I didn't even know about. So all in all it's been a really positive experience and it's been awesome just hearing from people and hearing their stories and hearing how much they like this story and I love it.
2: No, I I in in case it's not clear. I've really enjoyed it and it's a oh, very, good. Obviously it's a very well produced show. <laughs> <laughs> it's as though you're an experienced audio producer. I don't know how yes. you pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. So what have you found to be the most compelling evidence for Bigfoot so far in your work?
3: Um, Aside from the eyewitness accounts, which I just keep kind of turning over in my head, I think one of the most interesting things were these giant ground nests that were found out on the Olympic Peninsula by a guy who was doing a survey on a timber cut. And he was out on family private family timberland and was walking around in the middle of this thick brambly forest and came across these huge nests they were probably eight nine ten feet in diameter and there were several of them and they looked pretty fresh because the fawn or the flora that had been used to make them was they were they were branches that had been snapped off and they were still green which means they were relatively new and he's someone who'd been out in the forest for 30 some odd years and had never seen anything like it so he reached out to The Department of Natural Resources out there in Washington, as well as the Olympic Project, which is the Bigfoot Research Group based out in that area. And they all came out and took a look at it, and everyone's standing around scratching their heads, and no one has ever seen anything like this. And yeah, they brought in some bear biologists, and the bear biologists said, Well, they're not bear beds, they're too elaborate for that. So I got to see these. They were had been around for a couple years by that point. Because in in finding the nests and then seeing how fresh they were, the decision was by the timber company. Okay, we're not going to log this land. We'll give you guys the Olympic project five years to sort of figure out what's going on here. Wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? It's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they were like, we'll have to log it eventually, but for now, like, we'll go do other plots, and you can sit here and, and keep an eye on this. So they did, they watched it for, um, two years, I think, waiting to see if any, if the thing, whatever had made it might come back.
2: So they set up like trail cams, that sort of thing.
3: Yeah. I think they set up trail cams. I think they just like, you know, camped out there. I think they just kept kind of coming back and, and checking everything out and nothing ever came back or at least not that they saw. And so then after that, they brought in a couple of experts, including a guy named Dr. Jeff Meldrum, who's an anthropologist out of Idaho.
2: Yeah, the listeners will know him,
3: Yep. Okay, great. Um, So he teaches at Idaho State University, which incidentally is only about 45 miles down the road from where I grew up. So, you know, another little moment of, oh, (laughs) we're in my neck of the woods here. Cool. Um, And he took out samples for DNA analysis and, um, yeah, sent those to get, get them analyzed. But having seen those nests and seen how big they are and seen how elaborate they were, I mean, they really think of a bird's nest and sort of how interwoven and shaped and formed they are. And that's basically what you're looking at on a massive scale. And it just kind of blew my mind. And there was definitely this moment where I was just like, well, well, shit! what are these?
2: <laughs> I typically put the swearing into the uh, into the Patreon feed and then the the beep it out on the regular show. But that's no trouble. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, that really was my response, as you probably heard in the first episode. It was just like my what are these? These are really, really weird. And there was that moment where it's like, well, maybe it is Bigfoot. So you got
2: to go see these yourself?
3: Yeah, I did.
2: And I didn't see any photos on the wild thing website. Are there, are there photos there or anywhere?
3: There are photos online. I was not allowed to take photos. That was one of the conditions for me being allowed to go down there. But if you Google cliff Barrickman, yeah, I know cliff. Yep. If you Google him and you Google bigfoot nests, you will see some of the photos that are there. Um, and in any case, those photos are better because they were taken when the nests were fresher. By the time I got there, they were starting to degrade. So, any photos I tech took would have looked like a pile of sticks pretty much. And they really were much more elaborate than that. They really, it was not just a pile of debris.
2: That is so wild. So
3: it is. they sent the,
2: the samples I'm assuming to Todd this
3: Yes. Well done. You know, your people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So well, Todd was our very first guest on monster talk. He's been on several oh, times. really? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.
3: He was great. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Very oh, he's funny a hoot. Dry yeah. sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed talking with him. So,
2: yeah, so so has I. I don't want to no spoilers for your show, but do we get the DNA results before the end of the season, or during the uh, show, or, or
3: yeah? But I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what. No, they no,
2: said. I don't want. No, I don't want to ruin <laughs> anything. So <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Um, they are, I believe, at the end of the third episode, they were talking about sending them in for analysis, and so it will continue from there. Okay, cool. All right, so there's cliffhangers. All right. <laughs>
2: That's fantastic. All right, and so so you've been out in the woods now. I I, I uh, have you have you been on a Bigfoot hunt?
3: I haven't been on a hunt per se. I've been out on an expedition. It was a short one. It was like a long weekend out in the Mount Hood National Forest with a few people associated with the Olympic Project and a couple of the other Bigfoot research groups, and just went out with about four of them um, and my producer Kelsey Ray, and we spent the weekend out there just sort of hearing about what they generally do when they go out on these kinds of excursions, what they're looking for. Um, one of the guys told us his his Bigfoot encounter story, which was a little creepy sitting there at night in front of the campfire with all the forest sounds around you. Uh, and then we went out on a, a late-night hike with uh, night vision and uh, thermal Vision.
2: Like like FLIR?
3: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um and it was it was pretty cool. It was a really fun experience. So so this show is
2: gonna take you through the end of the year. What what's next for you? What what are you working on after this?
3: Oh yeah. See, everybody asks that question. I'm not quite ready to divulge that yet. Okay. Mainly because I'm still trying to sort of hammer out if it's the right project for me. Gotcha.
2: Is there anything else you'd like to let listeners know about your show or anything else you'd like to plug or promote?
3: Um well you know, this is a, this is an audience that's used to talking about monsters. So I probably don't need to say this to them, but you know, the, the thing that I found, I kind of went into this expecting the Bigfoot people to be tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists, a little bit, uh, uh, crazy and have been extremely pleasantly surprised by just how down to earth everybody is. And I think that's one of the things that surprised me. And then, you know, they're basically people who have an interest in something, who are very curious about something, and who want to know more. And honestly, they're going outside, they're hanging out with friends, they're doing, they're pursuing a hobby that they find fascinating. And I don't really see what's wrong with that. So, uh, I would say you're not allowed to f- make fun of Bigfoot people anymore. Is sort of my general general feeling on that.
2: Yeah, I I, I hope that that's been our. Uh... I don't know what they the, that that's the the tone we've Your been Ethos? Taking. Yeah, ethos or <laughs> I, I I wanted to say footprint <laughs>
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> that that I, I hope that that's where we are as well. I mean, I I've been that guy out in the woods looking for Bigfoot and, you know, I still like to go out in the woods and mm-hmm. and I still even though I'm very skeptical, there's not You're a night that goes see one. Right, exactly. I I every time I'm driving through a pine forest, I keep hoping one will step out in front of me and I could just, you know, speed up and hit Run it. Run him over so, with your car. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> So you're I, speaking of monsters. Yes, exactly. I'm
2: terrible, but I, I, you know, I really would love it to be true. I would love. Yeah, it I
3: know. I think a lot of people do. I mean, there's just something about that that's extremely appealing.
2: It is. So, so you 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 did ex well. You you expressed some reticence around the paranormal Bigfoot question because it's not very yeah. scientific. But you probably ran into some paranormal Bigfoot people, right, when you're researching. I,
3: A very few. It actually worked out to my favor that I had gone to uh, Grover's uh, wife for his widow first, because she then put me in touch with other people who had known and worked with Grover. And I think, you know, people would come up to Grover with all kinds of theories and he would listen to them because he never knew if someone was going to give him information that was actually helpful to the work he was trying to do. Yeah. But I think he also got a lot of people who were like, yeah, they came here on alien spaceships. I've seen the landing site. Um, And, you know, he was patient, but I think that stuff kind of just drove him crazy. And he steered clear of a lot of that. So most of his peers, most of the people he stayed in touch with were of a similar mindset. And so he, I, because I was introduced to these people through Diane. They were people who knew Grover who were friends with Grover. And so I kind of got tracked into this more scientific side of things. So there were a few people I met who were a little bit more in the, uh, the, the paranormal Bigfoot, supernatural Bigfoot. Um, but I didn't end up having actually talking to a lot. I've gotten letters from a few, um, and have not really responded cause they don't seem like they're quite right. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I it it's, but it's a broadly, uh, it, how do I put this? I'm not, I don't want to be mean to, or dismissive of the people. I don't want to be dismissive of the people yeah. who support it. But it's a very non-scientific approach. And mm-hmm. despite the fact that there's been stories around like Bigfoot and UFOs or, it, well, to be blunt, um, a paranormal Bigfoot is a, a kind of special pleading. Why haven't we found yes. a body? Because it's extra-dimensional. You know, that's, right. it, it, exactly. it basically becomes a special pleading and it lets you get out of having to have evidence or having to have DNA or having to have a body or any of that kind of stuff. And so it's very right. frustrating. It's a-
3: if the laws of nature don't apply to Bigfoot, then they shouldn't apply to anything else. And then we can just throw everything we've ever learned in physics class out the window. Is Absolutely. My... Right,
2: right. So, yeah. I, although I do intend to do an episode in the near future about the, the UFO-Bigfoot connection because <laughs> it, it's out there. I mean, the, the stories yeah. are definitely out there. There's lots and lots of stories about Bigfoot being sighted, especially around Pennsylvania. I'm not sure what's going on there. but um, Really? Yeah. So huh. that was big in the 70s. but um, Okay. Yeah. It's so Good to know. Uh, the Patterson gimlin film you you did talk about that a little bit yeah um the, the uh and obviously you talked to bob gimlin um mm-hmm. so uh how did you feel about the film you, you probably watched the stabilized version i assume
3: yeah i mean i've watched all kinds of versions the color corrected ones the yeah. <laughs> slowed down ones you know all of them um that's it's so it's just it's really interesting to me, from the standpoint that, you know, you've had like four, three or four people come forward and say, well, I was the guy in the suit, but everybody's got kind of a contradicting viewpoint on how that story went. And as far as I know, no one has produced the suit, which to me would probably be worth a fortune at this point. if I you I know. Could actually, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just a lot of things with that film where if it's, if it's hoaxed, it was covered up extremely well. Um, and I also don't think Bob Gimlin's lying because I've, you know, I talked to the man, you heard a story on this last, this interview I did with him and he's stuck to the same thing for a long time and he's taken a lot of, of ridicule for it. And I guess there's a possibility that maybe he was a patsy and that Roger did orchestrate some sort of very elaborate hoax. And then they took that with him to his grave and that Bob never knew, but I don't know. That's one of those weird pieces of, of information out there where I'm just not sure what to do with it.
2: Yeah, it's tricky. Patterson sounded like he was a pretty tricky guy. Yeah. It, it, up to and including the fact that, you know, he made Bob have to sue him to try to get his money. I mean... Right. It's... It, I I don't doubt for a second I would have enjoyed talking to him. <laughs> oh, I'm
3: sure. I bet he was a phenomenal storyteller.
2: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just... I always felt like... Um, Uh, it it seems like if well, okay. There's too many coincidences for my taste the, the the whole thing, I mean.
3: Right. This is your first time out looking for Bigfoot and you happen, happen to have a camera and you happen to find it.
2: Yeah. And it's a female with big pendulous breasts and they match the only drawing. Like you, you wrote a book a little bit before about Bigfoot and the drawing you did was of a Bigfoot with big pendulous breasts. And that's what you see. And then, of course, that matches the William Rose sighting in Canada. It's it, there's a lot of weird coincidences.
3: Oh wow, you went way further down the rabbit hole than I did. Yeah, it,
2: it's it's um, it's uh. It, it, there's a lot going on there uh, mm-hmm. it, it, that makes me doubt.
3: But what would be really more
2: compelling would be if anybody else had found some compelling footage. And all the other subsequent Bigfoot video has been pretty shoddy.
3: Yeah, it really has. Yeah, um, I haven't seen anything yet that it's that is uh. That makes me sit up and take notice.
2: Well, I don't want to leave listeners on that sad note, though.
3: No, that's not. <laughs> Let's I think, talk about something happy.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I'm out of like my prepared questions, um, mm-hmm. but I, I, do want to talk about monsters a little bit more. We, we okay. actually have this, um, this finishing question we like to ask, ask uh, first time guests, and mm-hmm. that is, what is your favorite monster? And that could be anything that you declare as a monster. That's your personal taste.
3: So it can even be a real species. Absolutely. All right. Um I am going to say the Komodo dragon. Really? Okay. Yeah. Why? Think well, first of all, it's enormous.
2: They are really big. Yeah. They
3: are huge. And they when they bite you, they have like toxins in the glands around their jaw and they can like poison you and they can keep you from um I think it's an anticoagulant so like as you're as it's eating you and you're bleeding out, you can't even like clot. Oh wow! Yeah, and they smell really bad.
2: Oh really? That's yeah. yeah. I, I guess they should. I've been to plenty of reptile houses. None of them smell very pleasant.
3: Yeah, and they. Yeah, and I just. And they're old. Like they're an old, old species. They've been around for a really long time. Um, I'm trying to think. They think that they're they might have been around as long as almost four million years ago, which is pretty crazy.
2: Yeah. Basically so, maintaining the same morphology.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, they're they're really huge and and can be surprisingly fast. And mm-hmm. uh, I know it, it, there was a time of like maybe 15 years ago, people thought they had no toxins. Like they thought it was just a heavy bacterial load. But I know that recent research has pointed out that they, no, no, they got a little bit of toxin yeah. in them too. Yeah, toxins. Yeah. So, oh, and they have yeah. a lot of teeth.
3: <laughs> they have a lot of teeth. They eat. They eat carrion, mm-hmm. and. They attack people. I don't know. That sounds pretty monstrous to me. Yeah, no, they're Although huge. Really also huge. cool. Like, I don't want to, like, run one over with my car, per no, se. No, no,
2: no. Who
3: would no. do that? Who that's would terrible.
2: do that? <laughs> <laughs> <Some> horrible person. <laughs> terrible, terrible person. So, yeah. No, that's fantastic. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a good one. We had on a, um, a guy from Australia a few months ago. And we were talking about uh, crocodiles and alligators uh, it, it, before the movie uh, Rampage came out, and uh, mm-hmm. and he was talking about some of the many many species of uh, I think they're called goanna, the they're they're sort of big lizards of Australia, and okay. uh, it made me go back and watch a lot of lizard videos, and they are really really interesting hunters, and you know like a lot of lizards can't really run fast for a long time.
3: Right, but, but when they, they do can, move. whoa! but they can run really fast for a short time. Yeah, they can. Have you ever watched videos of, like, crocodiles or alligators charging? It's like, oh, yeah. No, it's Lord. crazy.
2: Yeah, no, it's scary as hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow, that's fantastic. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to Monster Talk and its listeners.
3: You are very welcome. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Cool.
2: Well, if, uh, if you need any <laughs> any super nerdy cryptozoology info, just reach out <laughs> to me. I'll be glad to provide it. I've, I've been doing this for a long time. so
3: I totally will. Thank you so much.
2: Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Today you heard an interview with Laura Krantz, host and producer of the new and popular show Wild Thing. You can find Wild Thing on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, and you can find links related to today's interview at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talks theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys.
1: To stay abreast of the latest from skeptic magazine and the skeptic society want cutting edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the skeptic society visit skeptic.com to sign up it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper